0: This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Good, Good, Good morning. This is the uh, first uh, Sunday of the New Year. This will be the first uh, Sunday sermon of the New Year. And if you haven't noticed yet, uh, I get this assignment every year. <laughs> So I'll, I'll greet you with what I always greet you with. If you haven't already, you can stop eating now. Okay. It's time to get our out of control, appetites under control. But my plan this morning with you is to do just the opposite. Uh, I want to increase and grow your appetite this morning. That's, that's my plan here. Not for all the delicious food and snacks we've been having uh, the last month, but for spiritual food. I want to increase... And grow your appetite this morning for spiritual food. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning um, humbly. We come to you uh, sometimes um, desperately. We come to you this morning, hopefully. We're in different places here, Father, and... We ask that wherever we are this morning, that you have words of comfort for us, words of encouragement for us, that we would find from the text uh, this morning, things that we haven't seen before, that we would feel things we haven't felt before, that we would see answers to problems that we haven't had answers for before. Father, I just ask this morning that you uh, do something Uh, bigger with your word than I can do without your help. So uh, help me out here, Lord, uh, to deliver what you have given me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm going to break the rules this morning. I'm going to do something different, and I have no idea if it's going to work or not. We do expository preaching here. Expository preaching means that you take a text and the meaning, the precise meaning of the text should be the precise meaning of your sermon. Okay? I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm a rule breaker. I'm not a, I'm, everyone knows I'm not a good person. So... Every, every year, a few weeks before Christmas, uh, Jem and I, go, we go shopping at Costco. And in December, the routine is always the same. We go into Costco there, and at some point, I go over into the ketchup and mustard aisle, and I start reading labels on uh, ketchup and mustard and whatever else is in that aisle. And she goes over to where the books are, uh, grabs a book, uh, puts it in the cart, and then I pretend for the rest of the duration that I haven't seen the book that she's just put in the cart. Because uh, a guy named Michael Conley writes good books. He writes good police detective stories. They're good mysteries. Really, really well done, and I've read all 37 of his books. Actually, I've read 36 of his books. The one I got wrapped up for me this year was his 37th. I like Michael Conley. He's a great writer. I spent several years in investigations in the police departments, and I know a real crime story from a, a bad one. I know a good one from a, a lame one. He does a great job. His facts are right. His rules are right. He, he does things the way it exists in the real world. And I can read it and I think this guy, he has good counsel, good people directing him. He, and he leads you on places. He leads you on tangents. And you learn after a while of reading him his style. And, and you, you realize after, after a while, oh, he just give me something here. Is he going to do something with this or is this just to distract me? And so I have to actually read these books with a three by five card. Because, uh, I, first of all, I have to write down the names at my age. I don't want to have to keep going. I bend over pages of important stuff so I can go back if I have to. But he really, he makes me think. He makes me think, who, who are we talking about here? And he's got this idea here. And is, I can tell this is one of it. He's going to do something with this. It's going to come around. He's just he, he captures me, and he gets me into the books, and I, and I really enjoy Michael Conley. The, the, a couple of them have even been made into movies. And just to show you what a good writer is, Clint Eastwood was in one of the movies. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I, I, I wouldn't call his books uh, exactly a masterpiece, but they're darn good books in, in terms of, if you like, please whodunit stories that are done well. That said, it reminds me of another masterpiece, a book that really is a masterpiece, and you know where I'm going with this. It's a book that was written over uh, 1,500 years, 66 books, as a matter of fact, written over a period of 1,500 years by uh, something, uh, give or take, maybe 40 authors, and some how these guys have crafted a book. And the book this morning uh, is, in my opinion, a master book. And uh, that's what I'm going to talk about this morning uh, because I want to just let you know up front, I think that your appetite for this book is too small. My goal this morning is to increase your appetite for this book. In order to do that, uh, I'm going to take you to uh, Luke uh, chapter 22. You can head over there right now if you want. Uh, Luke chapter 22 is a very uh, familiar text. It'll be to all of us. It's Peter's three denials and then the rooster crows. And I'm going to use that text to try to increase your appetite for Scripture. Now, um, before uh, we get into that in uh, in Luke, um, I want to first take you to a, a foundational piece of, of text that we, that's going to help be helpful this morning. Deuteronomy eighteen, Mark, uh, if you, if you have that one up there. We wonder in Scripture, uh, there are a lot of people who claim to be prophets back then as, as well as there are today, and how do you know if somebody's really a prophet? Okay, this this uh, text answers that. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. I'll stop there just for a second. If you are a prophet, you claim to be a prophet, and you don't speak properly, you don't speak for God, That offense is punishable by death. Okay? That's a capital offense. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? And so here's the answer to that question. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you need not be afraid of him. Emphasis there is if the word does not come to pass or come true. What I'm trying to want to establish here first off this with you this morning is when somebody claims to be a prophet, when somebody claims they have a word from God, uh, the penalty if they're lying is death. And the way you know is that they have 100% accuracy. They are, their prophecies always come true. Okay? <laughs> I'm going to start want to start this whole thing with that under your belt. Now, let's go to Luke chapter 22. And I'm going to read the text here, starting in verse 54. Jesus has just been arrested. He's been taken to the house of the high priest. It says, Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. Familiar story? Not new to anybody here, I'll bet you. Peter has followed Jesus under arrest into the courtyard of the high priest. The scene there is now they're sitting around a campfire. That's a very important fact. They're sitting around a campfire. Okay? That's, what, that's what it says there in verse 55. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard. All right. It's really just a little over a one-hour scene. It it starts there. It says, first, something happened, and he denies it, verse 58. Then about an hour later, uh, verse 59. So this is really a short, compressed amount of time around this campfire when this this whole thing takes place. And then we have the three denials. I just read them to you. I'm not going to repeat them again. Lastly, we end in verse 62. Very importantly here for context. He looked up at Jesus. Jesus saw him after he had made denials. And Peter wept bitterly. Okay? Peter wept bitterly. You can, you can imagine that, can't you? That you looked up and you realized Jesus just saw me deny him three times. And how close they were. That's an that's a amazing emotional scene. Now Luke is done with Peter for a while. As Luke continues on in his text, we're not going to hear from Peter again. Until we get to the empty tomb. And it will tell us in chapter 24 that when Peter got news of the empty tomb that he ran there. Just You, know, you can make a note one of these days in the, in the margins there in, in chapter 24 uh, next to Peter running to the tomb. The context of Peter running to that tomb is he is this broken man that wept bitterly. Okay? has nothing to do with today's sermon. But when you get to chapter 24 in your Bible study, write down, this is Peter wept. This is going to be his first kid. This is where he was at when he ran to the empty tomb, for what it's worth. So, I've taught this uh, many times. You probably have half dozen. I've even preached this passage from the pulpit previously. And so I know now from personal experience that what I should do now is to stop and tell you not to be like Peter. This is about Peter. Okay? Peter was a flawed man, right? Tried to walk on water. how would that work for him? Didn't work for him. He, con- he confessed, "Thou art the Christ, thou art the Son of the living God." He did a good job. And then immediately after that, Jesus said, "Well, I'm going to Jerusalem to die." And he says, "Not on." Peter said, "Not on my watch." Peter was, was prideful and he was as cocky. at the Transfiguration, he had some stupid idea about building a tent and spending the night there. In the upper room, the night before Jesus was arrested, Jesus came and he said, "And he said, I'm going to wash your feet, Peter." And Peter said, You're "Not going to wash my feet." And Jesus says, "Yeah, I am, or else." And so Peter said, "Don't wash my feet; wash me all over." Peter was an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> At another point in time, uh, 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 Peter was hanging out with the Jews and the Jews only. And Paul, in the book of Galatians, comes along and he and he criticizes Peter. What are you doing, Peter? You know better than this. You've know you had this vision. Peter's just a mess. He's a flawed man. And and, and that's an important part of what's going on right here. Um, But uh, the expository teaching, okay, is that the main point of the text? Don't be like Peter? Is that what this text is about? I go from the text and I go to you, straight to you, and I say, don't be like Peter, right? Fortunately, we're not flawed that 's a pause that 's a laugh <laughs> um, I, I think there 's an application in here for this, but this is this is not the main point of the text. How are we going to get to the main point of this text? What is this text really about? the way we have been taught to find the main point of the text if, if we 're trying to do expository preaching is we've got to find the context context is always drives the main point all right and we have forgotten at this point i 've neglected to give you the necessary context. So we're going to go back here for just a minute and let's work on context for just a, a minute. Um, as soon as I can turn the page here. Uh, first thing. Starting in the book of Luke in the, in, the, in the major portion of the book of Luke before um, we, Jesus comes into Jerusalem what we spend most of our time doing what Luke spends most of the time doing with us is telling about all the miracles that Jesus did. Why does Luke spend so much time telling about the miracles Jesus Jesus did? Uh, Hebrews chapter uh, 2. The word was declared first by the Lord, and it was attested to by those who heard, and God who bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Miracles were for the, the purpose, the singular purpose of convincing people that Jesus was the Son of God. The miracles were there to prove that Jesus was divine. They illustrate His divinity beyond question. So Luke spends the better part of this first part of this book trying to convince us by the conventional method the miracles prove that Jesus is divinity. Alright? He can speak now. But now we've come to a point in Luke's test where Jesus has gone into Jerusalem and in chapter 22 where we are today, in the first part of 22, we find ourselves in the upper room. This is the Last Supper. So let's, let's look at this context a little bit and see if we can figure out what's going on here at the Last, at the last Supper. Um, several things happen. In, in, in 22, let me back up a page here, uh, verses 19 and 20. We come to the new covenant, and Jesus says, This is my body which will be broken, and this is my blood which will be sh- shed for you. And so, what Jesus is telling them there is about what is eminently about to happen. When he says, My body's going to be broken, and my blood's going to be shared, and I'm not going to do this again until I come again, that's a prophecy. He's prophesying that in the days ahead, this is going to come, and then he's going to be gone, and then he's going to come back again. You have to read between the lines, but there is a prophecy there. In verse 21 to 23, there again in the upper room, he says, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to him by whom he is betrayed. What is that? That's another prophecy. He is prophesying that somebody there in the room is going to betray him. Let me back up just a minute. He says, my body will be broken. That's a prophecy. We're not into 22, but if I get into 23 and 24, does that prophecy not get fulfilled? It does, doesn't it? That's where where Luke is at. And he says here that someone in this room is going to betray me. Jump ahead to verse 47 and 48. While he was still and this is after he leaves the upper room, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and a man called Judas, one of the twelve, who was leading them, and he drew near to Jesus and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray me with a kiss? In the upper room, Jesus prophesies his death. In the upper room, Jesus prophesies Judas is going to do this. Look, go to verse thirty four. Jesus is talking to Peter. In 34, Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. I would call that a prophecy. I think that prophecy got fulfilled in what I just read you. Verses 54 to 62. I, I, just uh, back, back in eighteen, chapter eighteen, Jesus told him, "I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be, I'm, I'm going to be mocked and beaten and blindfolded." And and just just to emphasize, if you go back to what I just read you there, in fifty four to sixty two. Okay, keep reading into sixty three. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him and they blindfolded him and they kept asking prophecy. Who is that that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming. That, my friends, is another prophecy fulfilled. He prophesied that in eighteen, and here we have it again in twenty-two. The only thing I'm trying to tell you is what is the flow of the text in twenty-two? Is it what did Peter do? Don't be like Peter. The flow of the text here in chapter 22, clearly, Jesus stands up at the Last Supper and in subsequent moments, and He prophesies about things that eventually become fulfilled. We are in the flow here. We are in the midst of the flow of prophecy and fulfillment. This is not about Peter. In spite of everything I've taught all you in the past, that it was. I finally figured out this time this is not about Peter. This is about Jesus, and this is about Jesus' prophecy. You see, he did miracles and miracles and miracles to establish his veracity as the Son of God and his deity. There's no more miracles now. It's a caveat here. There there is one more miracle after this because Peter cuts the guy's ear off right when he gets arrested, and then Jesus sticks it back on. I'd call that a miracle. But we don't get that until John. In Luke, we don't know that that's Peter because Luke doesn't want us to focus on Peter. John will come in later and fill the gap for us, but not yet. This is not about Peter. This is about Jesus. We're trying to establish Jesus' deity, no longer by miracles, but now by his ability to be accurate in his prophecies. All right? Some prophecies he's given are way back. Some are just given and immediately the next day or the day after. This is about prophecy and fulfillment. What we have here, essentially, is kind of a closing argument uh, about Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's about to go to the cross. Who is this guy they crucified? He could do all these miracles. And now Luke is showing us, not only that, he was a prophet. He was a certified, verifiable prophet, prophet, priest, and king. He was everything that he claimed to be. Now, to me, figuring this out this time, that this is more about Jesus than Peter, is a twist for me. Okay? And it makes me think, you know, how, how could I have looked at this so many times and not seen it before? What is it, you know, uh, uh, about this book that the more you in it, then the more you in it, and the more it reveals itself to you over and over again and deeper and deeper and deeper ways, okay? But the flow is clear and discernible. This is a kind of a closing argument about his prophetic office and a little thing here. Some of you by now probably have started reading through the Bible. You're gonna, you do that every year or maybe you've never done it before this year. You're going to try it. Some of you, eh, okay? But if you have started reading through the Bible, and you were reading through the Bible, and you got to Luke 22, and you just read Peter's denial, what would you got out of it? I bet you would have got out of it, I need to not be like Peter. You know what? It takes some work, it takes some time, it takes some effort to find out what that passage is really about. That's just a little uh, thing uh, aside there, but uh, at any rate, I've missed it many times. So anyways, now we know the main idea of the text. The main idea of the text is is not about Peter, it's about Jesus and his prophetic role and how accurate and verifiable that is. However, there's a problem. talk just for a minute about John. John wrote another book. It's called John. (laughs) It's clever, okay? Now, John, the book of John is different, if you don't already know this, from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. Those, Those three gospels take the events, a lot of the same events of Jesus, and they tell them in different ways, in different ideas. So you, you kind of get a different perspective. It's, it's like going to an armed robbery and, and one guy will just tell you everything about the gun. Another guy will tell you everything, height, weight, size, what it was wearing. And then the third guy says, I didn't see anything. <laughs> he, he didn't want to get involved. Three different total perspectives from the same answer. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Alright? So Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover the same amount of territory. Now the book of John, I think, I think we think Was probably came 20, maybe 30 years after after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's got a different mission. His mission is not to repeat everything those guys did. His job is to come up with some stuff about Jesus that they didn't talk about. Or maybe there's a hole here or there in in what is in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke that he wants to fill. And I think that's what's going to happen here. John chapter 20, verse 31. Now put this up, but this works a lot better if you see it in your own Bible. It says here, chapter 20, starting verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have. Life in His name. Now, I, I, I like for you to see this in the book, because in the book, that chapter ends right there. Okay? And, and, and my mine, mine heading there is the purpose of this book. John's come to the end of his book, friends, and, he's in, and he says, And the reason I wrote this book is so that you will believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing... And they all lived happily ever after. That's the end of the book. John's written everything he needs to read, all that he wants to fill, and he doesn't need this last chapter. Except he knows there's a problem. He knows Luke left us with a problem. Stay here, in John, if you're there. But we go, let's go back, you know, to, uh, to to Luke 22 again, all right? And this time, I, instead of just reading 34 to you, the, when the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Let's go to the beginning of that. Luke 22, 31. Is that it? Okay, okay. Um, not exactly what I have in mind here. Oh, there we go. There we go. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Satan wanted you, Peter, but I held him off. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, when Jesus prays, the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. When Jesus prays, you you can bet on it. You take it to the bank. Okay, Jesus prayed for him that your faith would not heal and when you have turned again strengthen your brothers then Jesus said Peter I tell you the rooster will crow and you'll deny me three times let's back up here I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when you have turned again strengthen your brothers Luke left us with Peter weeping bitterly but there's a prophecy here in verse 31 I pray that your faith won't fail. It may seem like it failed, but you're going to turn. A time will come when you have turned again, and you will strengthen your brothers. That is a prophecy. The prophecy is that Peter, whose faith failed, that he denied Christ three times, that that isn't going to be the end of the story. So what's the end of the story? John chapter 21. John's going to do what he always does, and he does well. He knows Luke left the gap. He knows Matthew and Mark didn't fill it either. So John's going to come along and do what he always does. And he's going to fill the gaps there. So in 21, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others and the disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got in the boat. That night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. That's the guy who wept bitterly. That's the still state of the mind he's in. He says it's Jesus, and he goes into the sea. He threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, they dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about 100 yards off. What do we need to see here? Let's start with geography. It says here that that we are in, um, rebuild himself at at the Sea of Tiberias. Okay? The Sea of Tiberias is also known as the Lake of Gennesaret, Luke chapter 5, and it's also known to you and I as the Sea of Galilee. They're at the Sea of Galilee. All right? Now then, in chapter 5 of Luke, Jesus meets some guys on a boat, and he says to them, you've been fishing, go out and catch some fish. And they said, we've been fishing all night. There ain't no fish out there. And he says, go cast your nets. And they say, we tried last night, and it didn't work. He said, go cast your nets. They went and cast their nets, and their nets were so full, the nets were breaking. So as John plagiarizing Luke No. The scene here is in parallel to Luke chapter 5 when Jesus chooses disciples and He says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. There's a parallel going here and we don't want to miss that. John doesn't want us to miss it. The other thing, John chapter 22 and and verse 9, it it says, When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Where did Luke take us in 22? It says they were by, they kindled a fire. And that's where that happened. They were out by a campfire. But that's, this is important. This is a charcoal fire. Now hold, hold your finger there on 21.9 and go to 18.18. 18. Okay? This is... John's account of the three denials. This is a sentence out of that same event. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and wearing themselves. Peter was also there standing and wearing himself. It was a charcoal fire there outside the high priest's house. Where are we now in John 22 at the lake of T- or Sea of Tiberias? We're at a charcoal fire. you think John's trying to tell us something? John's being more specific because he knows the charcoal fire in Luke 22 and the charcoal fire here in John 21, we're, those are two dots, fans. We're supposed to connect. John is trying to connect those two scenes. All right? Now let's, let's read on, starting in 15. John 22. John 21, 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, Yes, Lord, you know I do. I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything You know that I love you. There's some kind of connection between Luke chapter 5 when the disciples meet on the same beach. They're on in this chapter. They're made fishers of men. Right? There's some connection to that, to Peter's denial, three denials at the kindled fire. Now, once again, more specifically, not at a kindled fire, but the same fire, only we call it more specifically the charcoal fire. And John wants us to connect these three events. In the big picture, what connects these three events was Peter, who wept bitterly. Peter, who was crushed because he made three denials. Now John wants us to know it didn't end there. You know what happened? He made three affirmations. He made three affirmations to to undo the three denials. Jesus gave him a chance to be restored, and, and, and he took it. What's happened now is Luke 22, 31, 32 has been fulfilled. Peter, your faith will not fail and you will be turned. John wants us to know Jesus was 100%. His prophecies 100% came true and Luke left one laying on the table. And, and John comes in and he picks it up and he deals with it. Good job, John. Now all I've done here Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written probably sometime, some pre-70s, around 70 uh, A.D. Then 20 years or, or so later, along comes John to, f- to fill in some of the gaps. And all I'm trying to do with this, this text is, is show you, you know, you can, you can do your one year through the Bible reading and go right through this, or you can stop and camp here. And if you stop and camp here, and you get off the surface and you go into the depths, you will find stuff and and you will be blown away because this book is a literary masterpiece and the way different men from different times can weave things together and make one take take one thread we we i've just we've just woven one thread through 20 years and seen how it rolled and twisted and how this fed that and under the authority under the inspiration of the holy spirit what these guys do when they put their words into the text that we have this is no regular book and i'm i'm just going through this little window right here If you've got any mileage at all, you know these dots don't just connect between these four uh, uh, gospel writers. There's dots way back here from Moses that connect at the time of Christ. There's dots in Psalms and David, and and they connect up here. But it takes time, and it takes work, and it takes effort, and you have to be curious. You have to want to know what's in there. The main point of the text is Jesus was Messiah and he was a prophet. That's not the main point of this sermon. This is where I cheat. The main point, what I'm trying to get you to, this book is way more complex than you have any idea. You walk around with this thing on your, in your phone, in your hands. You, we have no idea the depths and the richness of what we've been given. We say we know it's there, we know it's God's Word, we know it's God's Word, and then we let it sit there. Bob taught us this morning that the Bible consists of what we're to believe about God and what He expects of us. If I was you and me, and I am, (laughs) I ask ourselves, why are we not more curious? What's more important than this? I want to increase your appetite for this book. It's a masterpiece. I want you to see the complexity, the, the, the way the singular threads are woven from beginning to end, and they all line up, and then there's a unity of the message, obviously under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is a one-of-a-kind masterpiece. There's no other book anywhere like it. No book from antiquity does anything that this book has. It's consistency. It's inerrancy. It's unchangeable. It, ha- it has been preserved in, in ways nobody can explain because no other book written in mankind has ever been preserved in this fashion. And, and provably so by the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have science. I believe in science. Okay, and Math. I want you to value, engage, cherish with this book and the ways you have failed to do so. The creativity here is unmatched, and it's unbelievable. Michael Conley, you're in the back seat, dude. Now, some of you already know this. Some of you are believers, and you get this, and you know what I'm talking about, and you're in your Bible studies, and you're working at it. You don't just read through and whatever. You know, you got to spend time in the text. you got to have context. You gotta, where, where does it fit in this chapter? Where does it fit in this book? Where does it fit in the whole? You, want, you understand how much work it takes to do that. I just want to encourage you who get that already, don't quit. Stay with it. I mean, uh, 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 there are pearls in this book that you and know I haven't found yet. Let's go there together, and you're only going to do this in a real Bible study. You're not going to do this by yourself, reading wherever you do most of your reading. Go deep or go home. If, you, if you're an unbeliever, I'm just telling you, this book is uh, it's impressive. It's unmatched. What this Word has for you if, you, if you're not there in faith yet, is take pick it up and read it. Unless the Holy Spirit uh, guides you, you know, you're never going to get it. But He, if you're searching and He is there, you're going to see things that are going to blow you away. There is sufficient evidence in the way this book is put together. 66 books, 1,500 years, 40 authors. It is unified, coherent, preserved, and singular in, our, in, uh, in message. It's unequaled by any other piece of existing literature. You can pick it up, you can read it, and you can trust it. It demands your attention. It demands your belief. And this book was written personally, one-on-one to you. It was written personally to you, personally to you. This is God talking to you when you read what you're reading. Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus has spoken to us in these days through this word. Hebrew says this is his word. This is Jesus' spoken word. Hebrews chapter 1. 2 Timothy 3.16 What Jesus has written to you and I is valuable for teaching, correction, reproof, training to completely equip your life. This, this book will teach you. This, this book will fix you where you're broken. This will tell you you're, you're messed up. Don't do this anymore. And then it will train you if you allow it to. Acts 20.27 20, This book contains the whole counsel of God. Everything you need to know, the whole counsel of God, is in this book. Not your favorite stories, not pieces of it, the whole thing. John 17, 17, thy word is truth. We live in a culture that can't find truth with both hands, right? This book contains truth. If you want to know the way in and the way out, this is where you find it. Husbands. You have been commanded to sanctify your wife and present her to Christ. And the way you have been told to do that is not to fix her by your own messes, but just to wash her in the Word. If you don't know what the Word says and you're not working the Word into your wife, you're not fulfilling your husbandly duties. Are you lost? Do you find yourself lost? Psalm 119, God's Word is a lamp unto your feet. It's where you will find your way if you're lost. Are you in a mess? From my vantage point, I know most of you. (laughs) You want a remedy? (coughs) Hebrews 4, for the word of God is living, active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning thoughts and intentions of the heart. This book will get to you. This book will will jerk a knot where a knot needs to be jerked. It'll fix you. It'll cut you. And it'll heal you. It's a compass. It's a fence. It's a hammer. And it will nail you. It's a window. It's a balm for the afflicted. And it's a rudder. It condemns and it mends, it reveals what was hidden, and it defines the forbidden. It answers questions and settles objections, and it addresses your fear and gives you a hope to cheer. Charles Spurgeon has said this very well. I'm going to read this. I don't know if you can process it or not. I love Charles Spurgeon. He's great with words. No other writing has within it a heavenly life whereby it works miracles and even imparts life to the reader. Why, the book has wrestled with me, the book has smitten me, the book has comforted me, the book has smiled on me, the book has frowned on me, the book has clasped my hand, and the book has warmed my heart. The book weeps with me and sings with me, it whispers to me and preaches to me. It maps my way and holds up my goings. It was with me during Young Man's Best Companion and still in my morning and evening chaplain, two of his famous books. He got it from the Word. Last one. Bob shared this with us this morning. This is from John Calvin. Once we grasp the idea that God's word is the only path which allows us to investigate all that we may lawfully know about him and is likely the only light by which we behold all that may be lawfully seen of him, it will easily stop us from acting impulsively. For then we will realize that by going beyond the bounds of Scripture, we will be straying off into darkness and will inevitably and every step wander, stumble, and trip up. Will you neglect this book again this year? Or have I given you an appetite for it? I want you to see the complexity, the unity, the obvious inspiration of this one-of-a-kind literary masterpiece. I wanted to give you goosebumps. God wants to talk to you. Do you have an appetite to hear what He has to say? Lord, we we need you to grow this in us. We're, we're broken vessels. We're flawed men. We need you to create. Um, a curiosity, a passion, a desire to know more from a book that's the greatest story ever told. Father, we need you to light that fire in us. And I would pray this morning that that's what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.